Before we begin, I want to just make a quick note. John Paul White and I recorded this conversation when we had just learned that John Prine had been diagnosed with the coronavirus. On April 8th, John Prine, a true music legend, one of the greatest singer-songwriters of all time, succumbed to complications of coronavirus and passed away. We opened the conversation with how John Paul White was influenced by John Prine's music and and note that he should be on tour with John Prine right now. And so this episode is dedicated to the legacy of John Prine and to all who loved him. Everything feels upside down right now, doesn't it? A few weeks ago, as I was planning out season two of The Reckon Interview, coronavirus was barely a blip on our radar. And now it's changed our entire way of life. And if you're like me, sometimes you turn to music to help you get through confusing times. But right now, musicians themselves are wondering where to turn. When festivals like Bonnaroo and Hangout Fest are shut down or closed, when your favorite bars and venues have closed up shop, musicians can't go on tour. And that's the key to their livelihood. And so musicians like John Paul White are trying to figure out their paths forward. He's a Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter for Muscle Shoals, Alabama, the founder and co-owner of Single Lock Records, and a one-time member of the Civil Wars. But right now, like a lot of us, he's an Alabamian who's just stuck at home. Welcome to Season 2 of The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and this season is shaping up to be a little different than I expected. Over the next few months, you'll hear stories from the South that I hope will take your mind off of things for a little while. Now, many of these stories were recorded before the pandemic shut everything down, but I think they still offer stories of hope and resilience from some of the South's most creative thinkers. And we're also going to have interviews with people who are trying to adjust to this new normal. So today, sit back and listen to the sounds of John Paul White on The Reckon Interview. John Paul White, thank you for coming on The Reckon Interview. It's my pleasure. We are in uncharted waters right now for the country as a whole, but particularly for music and entertainers, touring musicians, record sales, everything kind of ground to a halt as we started shutting down, quote unquote, non-essential businesses around the country. Uh, I know that you were gearing up for a tour with John Prine in April, and, uh, and we learned last night that he is in critical condition right now with COVID-19. And I know he's been a uh, pivotal part of your career from wanting to become a songwriter to planning the tour with him next month. And I just was hoping we could start by talking a little bit about what that, what that means to you. I have been just immersed in this, this quarantine world for the past two weeks, but to, at the start of it, I uh, was on tour up in uh, New York state and Massachusetts and Canada and had to cut about seven shows off of the end of the tour and drove home. My wife didn't want me to, to fly. Drove back home and every single day felt a little bit more ominous, a little bit heavier, especially up there. People were definitely taking it serious quickly and they were, my shows were, some of them were sold out, but they wouldn't allow but 50% of the room. I kept feeling this ethical, moral dilemma of, yeah, people can do what they want to do, and, and they will do what they want going to do, but I felt a responsibility 
to not give people a, a reason to get out and get and be near each other. But it was a much more muted feeling at the time, for sure, and it just kept changing so fast. And fast forward to now, and to the real chance that somebody that is one of my biggest heroes on the face of this, you know, musical earth, but also a friend and someone that has treated me like an equal and treated me kindly and accepted me into his family. It's devastating. And it's it's hitting harder than anything has up to this point. It makes me mad. It makes me, you know, like, this is a national treasure and this is my friend and don't you touch him kind of thing, you know, and but it also makes me just want to shake people that I see hanging out in town at the garden centers and getting some great quality gardening time in during, like it's a vacation. I just feel like it, it's morbid, but it's going to take losing somebody like John to get some people to wake up and realize even if you think that you're going to make it through it, you're just carrying it around to people that can't. And he's had a hard row, you know, the past 20 some odd years, his health has been up and down. He's had, you know, he's just kind of been snake bit. And those are the people that this is going to prey on. And everyone has those people in their lives. You are one step removed from that, whether it's your parents or your grandparents or your friends' parents or grandparents or somebody that's my age or younger that has immune deficiency or you know they have issues with uh, their lungs. It's like, I just want to scream, especially in this state of Alabama where a lot of people have accepted the idea that it's either a hoax or it's not that big a deal or it's like the flu and I had the flu once and I'll be fine. And I just want to scream because that's the people that can't hear reason. They have to learn the hard way. I just, I worry that we've got a lot worse things in front of us. It does seem like the state is starting to take things a little bit more seriously. We're starting to shut stuff down more and more every day. Um, and there is obviously the economic consequence to this. A lot of people tend to think of people like you, successful musicians and entertainers who have been successful financially, you know, that they can kind of weather this storm. But music is really a, a touring business. You know, you as both a touring musician, but also as as the owner of Single Lock Records, how how is this affecting you and the people that work with you and, and for you? Well, I can say for myself, as much as people may think that I'm successful, it's a relative term, especially in the new music business that we're in, where the pie is much smaller than it used to be, where record sales is not what they used to be. And so we're all operating on, on a much smaller bottom line. and. And that's fine. That's the way it is. And I'm not chicken little about it all. And I don't sit around and whine about it. But it just does make your margins smaller and makes you think a little bit harder about how to set up your tours and how many people to be in your band and how much you can pay them. And if you can rent a van or if you get a tour bus, all these things have changed dramatically. 
and we depend almost 80 to 90 percent on touring for our income. So it doesn't matter who you are at any level, most of these guys are leveraged. Most of these guys have, if they're in the upper echelon, they've got a bus and they've got a staff and they've got musicians and they've got salaries and insurance and all that's gone. And then if you're a lot of the acts that we work with is single lock, it's the only form of currency you've got because, you know, streaming is minuscule in numbers and, and it takes a minute for that pipeline money to get to your doorstep. So touring is everything and they can't just go get a job now because they don't exist. And we're, we're just incredibly worried about them. And, and on top of that, you have a lot of creative people that can't make a living. They can't get out and do the thing that makes them click. And they write these songs because they, they're therapy and they need to share them with people. Well, that's gone. And a lot of them have, you know, anxiety and depression. And there's a lot of things that go into our profession that we don't cope well with being stuck in a room alone for weeks on end. It's not good for this this job description. And I, I don't know if you've described it as, as depression per se, but I've heard you talk about kind of the two-year period where you had walked away from the Civil Wars before you released your record, Beulah, and, and how during that period you didn't feel creative, that you couldn't write songs. You know, I have seen some people recently talking about like, oh, well, this should be great time for songwriters. They're all stuck at home. We should expect a bunch of great records when this is all over. But that's not how it works, is it? I don't think so. I mean, who knows? We may have this just huge glut of music, but I don't know how great it's going to be because most of the best music is inspired and from inspiration. And now we're all sitting with our guitars and rooms with ample time and you try to force it to happen and it, it usually is flat. It usually doesn't have the same weight that it would as if when you get this eureka moment, oh my God, I've got to document this. When you're trying to put out a mating call for the muse, <laughs> doesn't quite, it doesn't quite work the same way. And I've ran into that already. I tried to sit down and, and write a song for like two days. Finally just had to laugh about it and put it down and get to work on my property because I've got God knows how long a list I have of things I need to do. And so I'll just use a different part of my brain for a while until those things start uh, circulating. But I mean, obviously there's plenty to write about. There was already plenty to write about. And uh, plenty of time for introspection, and but so far, I'm I'm. That's just not what my brain wants to do. It, it uh, it's not sure what it wants to do. It's we're in weird territory. One of the things that Single Lock has done um, in the wake of this is set up these uh, quarantine variety hours that I think y'all are calling them. <laughs> it's a very, very high budget, slick show. You, you've noticed. <laughs> you were talking briefly paused about, you know, getting used to um, doing interviews and stuff on the road, but stuff like this, you know, artists recording from homes 
and, and doing these uh, online shows. I mean, we're seeing a lot of that popping up right now, and I think it is a good way of connecting with audiences. It, I think it's good for our own loneliness, and you know, because it's it's one of the only times I see my friends' faces is during that variety hour, unless I unless we FaceTime. But on top of that, the value of it, in my opinion, is for others not only to you know have something to do. I know a lot of people are really bored. I'm not bored in the least, but I know a lot of people are. And I got to thinking that you know there's a lot of people out there that for whatever reason they're shut in, they're stay-at-home moms or dads, they're they have a lot of social anxiety. They live out in the middle of nowhere. There's a lot of people getting to enjoy live music that haven't maybe at all or they don't get to very often or they don't have the money to go to shows and this is a pretty great thing for a lot of people out there that get to experience their favorite artists in a more personal way and i hope this doesn't go away you know i I definitely want to get back in the van and, and go out and you know shake people's hands and talk to them about what my songs may mean for them and how they've helped them or hurt them and that's the most powerful part of this business for me is those connections. But I hope this thing doesn't go away, or at least I hope we learn something from it on both ends, that we can access a lot of people out there that don't have the opportunity to see us play and that it's therapy for all. Yeah, yeah, I hope so too. On the show before, we've talked with some people from up in the Shoals region, talked with Billy Reed, and we've talked with Sonequa Martin-Green from down in Russellville. You were born in Muscle Shoals and grew up, I guess, just over the state line in Tennessee, but it's all the same basic region. Right. And you made the decision to to move back there and start a record label there. What is it about that part of the state and that part of the country that, that draws you, and, and how is it doing right now? It's funny. I've, I've never, once I moved up to Loretta, Tennessee, it's, it's like you said, it's about 20, 25 minutes north of here. And after high school, I moved down here to go to college here in Florence at University of North Alabama and, and then never left. It's the only place I've lived since then. I, I don't want to date myself, but it's been quite a while. Okay. So when you were working as a songwriter for EMI, you, you stayed based in Muscle Shoals? I was always here. Yeah. I drove back and forth to Nashville because it's like a two hour drive and at first, I couldn't afford to move. I had the dream of moving to Nashville because when you grow up here, when you grow up anywhere, it's not cool. It's your hometown. You don't see it the way other people see it. It's just another town. And so the more I traveled, the more I left here, the more I was around other musicians and other people. And I would talk about where I was from and my heritage and my background. They, they would always perk up. You're from the Shoals? Tell me about that. It was a strange thing. Like, What's a big deal? And I learned to love it more and more every minute that I was doing what I do for a living. And then, you know, raising a family here as well. You know, there's crime rates really low. The cost of living is incredibly low and uh, a lot of great creative folks and not only musicians, as you said, and studios, but people like Billy Reed and Natalie Channon and great restaurateurs here now at Odette and Yum and John Currents has brought his franchise, Big Bad Breakfast, into town and great coffee shops like Rivertown. We have everything that you would need, especially with the internet being connecting you to the world. 
There's absolutely no reason to leave here and be in any of the big hubs. Probably better that you don't, that you're the outsider, that you're the guy with a little bit different creative angle and a different edge than somebody that runs the rat race in Nashville every day. So I learned to embrace that. And I, the, I you, you couldn't pry me out of here now. Um, I'm, I'm a very, very proud citizen. Well, we're glad to have you. Thank you. You, you hinted at the, the musicians there. I mean, obviously, Fame Studios and Muscle Sound and that generation, you know, helped define, I guess, what is commonly called Motown music, but obviously it, it's sort of rooted in that Muscle Shoals sound. But now, I mean, you know, maybe I'm just hyper attuned to it because I'm an Alabamian, but it seems like so many of the musicians who are changing music you know, nationally are singer-songwriters from from the region, whether it's you and Jason Isbell and Patterson Hood, then also, you know, just across the um, state line in Mississippi, the Secret Sisters and Cedric Burnside, who's on your label. Is that part of the Muscle Shoals legacy, or is it just kind of happenstance? How does does that region affect your music? I think it's a little of all of the above. Growing up around here, you know, playing bars here in the 90s, it was tough. You know, it wasn't a lot going on. And it was, that's, you know, the reason that the truckers left and went to Athens. Because it was just only recently had it gone wet, uh, alcohol-wise. <laughs> right. In like mid-80s, I think, you, you, you still couldn't get a drink here. You had to go up to Tennessee, across the state line. And, and so... There was a really strong stranglehold on a lot of the establishments to have a bar and had live music. It was it was a tough existence, and it's tough getting a gig, tough getting people to go out to shows. The law would sit right outside the bars and bust people as they left. So the youth of the area decided, well, that's silly. So I'm going to go stay at the frat house, or I'm going to just go to a buddy's house, or I'm going to stay at home, and it killed the live scene around here for a good while. So about the time that Jason joined the truckers, about the time that the Civil War started firing up and the shakes were in their infancy and Gary Nichols was doing his thing and then joining the steel drivers and James LeBlanc moved to town and brought Dylan LeBlanc, his son, with him. And all these things started happening about the same time. But I think a lot of that is because the culture out around here changed a little bit. Uh, people started realizing that we couldn't just rest on the laurels of our ancestors as much as we love them. We, our generation, it was doing nothing for us. It was cool factor, but it wasn't paying our bills. It wasn't buying. It wasn't selling us records, and so. We knew we had to make our own hay, but we also knew that we could, because of those guys, that it was possible to have that dream and to fulfill it from this area. Whereas if all of us had grown up in a small town in Arkansas, we might not have grown up with that exact same dream and felt like it was you know, reasonable. And so we always had that in our pocket that you, you try hard enough, and if you've got a thing that's unique and palpable and connects with people, then you can do it from here. And there's, there's people walking around that can tell you firsthand. It all just kind of, as one domino fell, it not only gave confidence to the other folks that were doing it, but it also 
shined a light on our area and and as one you know a rising tide you know, a tide rise uh, i can't get the words out <laughs> rising tide lifts all ships yeah that's yeah. it thank you very much so yeah i think you know people started paying attention to the area and giving people you know anderson east comes along and there's so much great music down here that was already here just waiting to be discovered and that's kind of how single lock records came to be is that we knew that there were so many people in our backyard with an incredible amount of talent that just needed a little capital, a little push to help them get in a van and get on the road and make a record in a proper studio with a, with a proper budget and not have to work three jobs plus tour. That's how that whole entity came to be. And that was you um, and Will Trapp, a, a businessman there in Florence and then also Ben Tanner of, of the Alabama Shakes that really kind of decided to pay it forward to that next generation. Because, you know, Ben and I had firsthand experience of watching a little tiny something become a much bigger something, mostly from a roots, you know, word of mouth kind of groundswell kind of campaign. We knew that you didn't have to be in a major. You didn't have to be, you didn't have to have hundreds of thousands of dollars pushing you to become a viable commodity. And so we knew with that experience under our belts that we had at least a little bit to contribute to pay that forward to other artists. You know, from the outside, I mean, it seems like you and Ben especially were part of these two major bands that kind of were on the national scene, the Civil Wars and the Alabama Shakes. You know, the Civil Wars is is broken up and Alabama Shakes is all but, I mean, it's on hiatus, but it seems from afar at least like they are broken up. Do y'all ever talk about, you know, the, the decision to to walk away from, from those bands? I mean, what drove that decision? Not really. We, we tend to live in the present and in, in the future. I think that's why Ben and I really get along is it's all about what's going on now and what's coming and how to plan for that, not to spend too much time in the past. And all the things we've ever done inform who we are, obviously, and all the mistakes we've made and all the things we got right. So that's, it's always a part of us, but, but no, it's, you know, it's more personal than that. And so that's, that's mine and that's his. And we just, love to make music together and try every day to top ourselves. We try every day to make something more heartfelt, more, you know, therapeutic, something that connects with people as, as deeply and as personally as humanly possible. And so it's really all that matters. It's all that's ever mattered. Coming up after the break, John Paul White discusses his Southern influences, his thoughts on protest music, and ways you can support your favorite artists during these times. Once again. We've talked a little bit about musical influences from, from John Prine to, to the community there and the Shoals. Your music also seems rooted in kind of Southern literature and spirituality and you know playing with a lot of these ideas that that kind of go beyond you know what are some of the other influences from the south beyond beyond just music you know growing up down here and and you you know this everything feels a little lyrical listen to my parents talk listen to my grandparents and their brothers and sisters talk everything felt like it just fell out of a mark twain novel or or (laughs) if not that faulkner or 
Flannery O'Connor, you know, and so those those novels, once I discovered them, they just felt like the kindred spirits. Like I, I knew these characters. I mean, Faulkner was definitely later on for me to be able to digest it, but but Mark Twain early on, and that's always been a big part of my life, and, and cinema has been too, but storytelling is a major influence in my my life because my dad is a natural one and he's he's from a family of them i've always soaked that up the way that a good story can draw people in and move so many different emotions and so that's really all i'm trying to do with with my music as well is to is to draw people in but but mostly to make them feel like they're the person in the story that it's their own situation so I do tend to, without really meaning to, it does spin more Southern. It does spin more of the Southern Gothic and reflect my surroundings. But I really try not to put too fine a point on it and make it too geographical if I can keep from it. Because I really want anyone to hear these songs and feel like it's their story. To write it just just vague enough, just blurry enough that they can inject themselves into the story is the protagonist and or and this song is so about my mom or about my hatred of my job or my loneliness since I got my divorce or whatever it's it's all universal themes really at the heart of it and so there's times when I go geographic and there's times when I use flowery lyric that that definitely pinpoints where I'm from and and the way I was raised, but I try not to get too heavy-handed with it, uh, so that it can be a little bit more universal. Well, and it could be that I'm I'm projecting my own southernness on onto it, and so I'm saying more of that than than maybe somebody listening from from Nebraska might. You know, it's funny. You know, I have that conversation with people, and I say I felt like this song was so southern, so regional that it wouldn't click with anybody else, and like what so. What so is a song on Beulah that basically don't get above your raisin? Work the row you're in and don't put on airs. And, and the more I travel the world, uh, people tell me that that's the song that they clicked with because that's exactly how they were raised in Alberta or in upstate New York. It's very universal things. We just We just do it with a twang. Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing that increasingly you know and i don't know if it's the the political moment or, or what but you know i think that there's always sort of been this otherness that has characterized southern art but i think i mean there's a reason why faulkner and and mark twain and you know even even leonard skinner there's a reason why they resonate globally yeah there's rednecks everywhere there's there's it's just different accents but there's you know blue collar people that grew their own and uh, fended for themselves, that's that's not something that's just indicative of the South. Plus, as we're more connected in the world, we're, we're starting to realize in our music that it's less regional because like my kids, they listen to streaming services and they, you know, they've got the internet and they've got the television, so they, they hear music from all over the world all the time. So they're not going to write as regional music as I do. And I write less regional than my ancestors, you know, just one generation removed because all we knew when we were growing up, and I'm dating myself, but I, MTV didn't exist. Right. There were three channels. We didn't have cable. 
So all I knew was my parents' records. So yeah, it was country music and, and things like that. So And my friends' records was Southern rock. So that's really all that was in my DNA until college. My kids, they're listening to punk and rap and reggae and metal. And so they're not going to be beholden to their their geographic area when it comes to the music they create. And I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by that. I think we're going to lose a lot of regionalism in music, but... You know, there's pros and cons to that, so I'm anxious to see what this new generation puts out. When it comes to, I guess, roots music and Americana music, whatever you want to call this genre, it seems like a certain amount of study goes into the artists that came before it. And I don't know if that's just because it's the music that, that you and other artists have consumed or if it's, you know, sort of an intentional homage. The Herding Kind, you know, was remixing the countrypolitan sounds that it sounds like you grew up with. How much of that is deliberate study and how much of it is just kind of, like you said, taking the music that you, that you grew up on? With that record, it, it was a novel exercise for me in that I was in a position of being able to make whatever record I wanted to. And I'd I, I guess artists always think that they can do that, but <laughs> with my first solo record was basically a rock and roll record, and that was back in the mid-2000s. Then the Civil Wars is all collaborative, so that's two people, and it's not necessarily your, just your personal, 100% your personal journey. And then Beulah came out, it just fell out of me. There was no thought involved. It just, there, there it is, document it and go forward. And so with the hurting kind, it felt like one of the first times that I sat down and said, all right, who are you? What do you want to say? Well, how do you want it to sound? And I knew that I had been searching for records like Jim Reeves and Patsy Cline and early Roy Orbison, all that RCA Studio B stuff, all the Bill Porter, Chet Atkins, Fred Foster stuff. I thought, man, this is a nov- this is a perfect opportunity for me to do two things. One, make a record that I've been looking for everywhere, where it's you know basically Nashville sound, crooner, strings, sophisticated country record that I've been just craving because I'd worn all those records out. But also an excuse to track down my country music songwriting heroes and and try to write a song with them or use it as an excuse to get to sit with them and hear stories about Harlan Howard and Curly Putman and all those guys. So it worked out well, and I got to write some great songs with with the greats, and they treated me kindly. And for me personally, a huge success, and it did exactly what I wanted it to do. Yeah, it's a great record. Is that the vein you are thinking you will go into with your next record, or do you have anything in mind as, as to what you want to do with that one? I don't. Uh, to be honest, you know, you heard it here first. <laughs> Actually trying to get off the road, ironically enough, so that I could get home and live a little bit, you know, and see what the next record was going to be. Because I think I'm going to, that's the artist that I am and will continue to be. I think that each record is probably going to have a bit of its own uniqueness. I think the thread will be there with my voice running through it and my lyrical sensibilities, but I hope I don't ever repeat myself. I hope it's always evolving and 
at the heart of it, I really just want to make people feel things. And I have to feel something for that to be true. And whatever I'm doing, if I feel like I'm just regurgitating myself, I won't feel a thing. I'll just be treading water. And so I'm constantly looking for a different angle, a different edge, a different thing that blows my skirt up. I needed to get off the road and find out what that was. And so this is hopefully a good opportunity for me to do that. And uh, I'm going to just follow my nose. I don't want to think too much about it. As I write songs, I think there'll just be a motif that will show itself and I'll I'll let it be what it needs to be. Do you feel a, a pull one way or the other? I mean, we're seeing some records from people who weren't necessarily overtly political in the past, but are, you know, are becoming increasingly vocal with protest music. You know, it seems like there's a a rise in protest music compared to, you know, maybe the 60s. Is that something that you think about one way or the other, or, or the music just comes out the way it comes out? It comes out the way it comes out, but sometimes it's, you know, there's protest in the the framework, in the seams of it, in the threads. Like with uh, Good Old Days is a song that <laughs> leads off the last record. and There was no intention of right sitting down and saying, you know what, I'm going to get this off my chest. It was not that at all. It just things start coming out of you and you don't really realize why and you just let them happen and they hit the page and sometimes they sound good and sometimes they don't. And I, I don't get on any soapboxes with my music at all. I have, I have, I'm a big fan of some folks that do that. You can tell that they, they had an intention with what they were writing, that they had something that they needed to get off their chest. And I, I think maybe I do that, but it's a lot more passive. It's a lot more subtle. It just comes to the surface and I document it and I'm like, oh, wow, didn't intend to write that song, but there, there it is. And it's funny, you know, I've had this talk with other folks about why there isn't even more protest music than there is. I think at some point it just becomes redundant. I think with a lot of us, we all know where we stand politically and we all know that we're fed up with certain things. And I think we channel that emotion in slightly different ways because people hear the rhetoric constantly that they seek a different angle uh, from music. And I tend to as well. It's like sometimes when people are railing against the government or the president or, and, and I'm like, yeah, I agree, but give it to me in a little bit different package, you know, show me a different wrinkle to it. Show me what, show me something we can do to change it. Show me, you know, some sort of hope or, or not show me that it's, that it's uh, the end of times. Make me feel that that's fine. But I don't want to just hear the same thing over and over. This guy sucks. This guy's an idiot, that kind of thing. Like, yeah, we all know that, or we all feel that, or we don't. You know, we're on one side or the other. We're all preaching to the choir, especially now because people are so polarized. You're not changing people's minds. All you're doing really is letting people know how you feel, and that's great if that's what you need to do. But for me, I'm, I'm trying to find a little bit more subversive ways to be the you know, change I want to see in the world. Well, you've been very generous with your time. To close, I guess I just want to talk a little bit about are there ways that our listeners can support some of the uh, people in your community that 
that are out of work right now. Obviously, streaming music is a good thing, and people are doing a ton of it, and those monies get to us eventually, And the, but it's a small amount that uh, takes a whole lot of those to add up to pay bills, so... I would strongly suggest, if humanly possible, to go directly to the artist's website and buy a record, buy a record for a friend, buy a bumper sticker, buy a t-shirt, just anything. Buy a gift card and then get their record later when they make their next one. And Because, you know, a lot of the big box places won't ship music right now because it's, it's non-essential and so... But if you go directly to their websites, they will. On top of that, a lot of people are doing you know, live streams with tip jars. Please, if you can, toss a dollar or five or something in, in that tip jar when, when you, feel like, you, know, you feel like you can do that. The other thing is you know, Music Cares is uh, run by the Grammy folks, and it's a fantastic organization that's doing a lot for out-of-work musicians but also out of work artists and songwriters and, you know, people that work behind the scenes and that don't wield a guitar that are out of work as well. You know, tour managers and merch managers and sound engineers, all those folks are also out of a job. And Music Cares does a great job helping those folks supplement. The people in Nashville are having a really hard time right now because, as you know, the tornado coming through and devastating East Nashville. And then this comes on top of it. Most of East Nashville's musicians. So now they've got leveled houses, no jobs, and people are afraid to go out and help work like they were. So there's, I wish I could remember off the top of my head right now, there's a Central Tennessee fund uh, that I'm drawing a blank on the the acronym that is doing a lot of wonderful work. It's on my uh, in my social media where I I've posted links. Okay, we'll we'll share it in the in the comments of this episode as well. Yeah, buy from the from their web from their websites if possible. Stream if you can. Tip them if you can. But just know that they're struggling, and this is going to change our occupation forever. Yeah, what do you what do you mean by that? I mean, just in terms of people are going to be apprehensive about going to shows again, and and the all these fest- festivals that have been canceled, it's going to be a year from now before they're going to be back up and running. You know, a lot of them in the fall are already canceling, and those are lifeblood for most musicians because you make a, a the biggest part of your salary you make it at festivals because they have more money to pay and then you're able to go do legs of your tour that are not profitable. And you're buoyed by the the check that you get from the festivals. And so those are probably going to be slow to reorganize, getting that many people in the same space. People are just either going to be afraid to organize those or, or going to be afraid to buy a ticket to a three-day Bonnaroo where everybody's going to be on top of each other. I don't see that happening anytime soon, and that's a big blow to us. But also, all these musicians are going to be digging their way out of whatever, however big a hole where you end up in by the end of the summer. Pay, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul, and there's going to be a lot of musicians that just can't do it anymore, 
and have to go get a job and, and we're going to lose their art. We're going to lose their therapy. We're going to lose their productive um, way of helping us all cope with all this. That'll, it'll, it'll be gone forever. But on top of that, man, there's a whole bunch of us that are going to be, get sick and worst case scenario, die because we travel for a living and we surround ourselves with people that travel. And so we're as susceptible as any walk of life in this. And we're just scratching the surface with people like John Prine and Joe Diffie. It's going to be exponential soon. And that's going to scare people to get into our walk of life and to be a musician. So I just don't think we've even scratched the surface of the ramifications of this for people that do what we do. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid you're right. But I know that I look forward to the day when I'll get to see you and, and so many others live and in person again. It's going to happen. Point. We're crazy. We can't stop. We're going to be back out there. So hopefully we keep our heads above water until then. I hope so too. We'll stay safe until then, and thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that's all, folks. Thank you to John Paul White for joining me, and thank you to you for listening. That fund he was trying to think of to help out artists in Nashville is called the Community Foundation of Middle Tennessee. You can find them at cfmt.org. And you can contribute to Music Cares by going to grammys.com. All the songs in this episode were written and produced by John Paul White. Please support him and all the other artists at Single Lock Records, and let's make sure Alabama stays in the music business. This episode was executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree, and it was edited by Steph Colburn's awesome team at Edit Audio. I know we're all going through a lot right now, so please shoot me an email or tweet me at at John Hammontree with any suggestions for guests or any concerns you have right now about the pandemic and the financial fallout. If you like Reckon, follow us everywhere on social media and sign up for our weekly newsletters. And hey, if you're feeling generous right now, leave us a five-star review and help us spread these great stories from the South. And until next week, be well. 